we'll be reading from Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. You can find it on page 1862 in the Pew Bibles. It is not to angels that he has come, that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack, if I haven't met you before. Um, who, who else struggled to kind of get out of bed this morning in the cold? Was that just, just a lot of people? It was hard, right? I feel like the cold has finally set in. I was looking out the window, the sunshine was kind of there, but then I walked outside and it felt like I was walking into a freezer. Uh, it's not nice, uh, but so good that you got, you got up out of bed. It's great into church this morning. So good for us to be able to gather together uh, under God's Word to learn from Him today. Um, last week we started this new series looking at the book of Hebrews and um, for, um, for the church, for the Christians that the book of Hebrews was written to, they were uh, really struggling in the cultural kind of push and pull around them to follow Jesus. They were drifting away from trusting in Jesus uh, and last week we looked at how uh, Jesus is the better messenger, uh, the one who we need to listen to, whose message of salvation we need to listen to uh, so that we do not drift from him. This morning we're looking at how Jesus is the better human um, when you think of, of some of the crowning achievements of mankind, what are some of the things that kind of come to your mind? What are some of the images that come to your mind? Because we often think of really big things, don't we? Like buildings that have been made, cities that have been built, inventions that have served humankind greatly and that have made it possible to, to even do things like go to the moon. Like, that's pretty cool. We might think of some of the great women and men of the past who have served uh, their country or their people in some way or the world in some way. Uh, when you hear that phrase, crowning achievement, what do you, what do you think of? Or when you think about what, what your crowning achievement is, like what, what comes to mind? 
Now, for me, I kind of, for some reason, go back to high school in my brain. I think my crowning achievement was actually finishing building something in tech class. I was never patient enough to finish any of my projects when I was in tech. I really wanted to just talk to my friends and, uh, and then yeah, didn't really want to do the work. But I did finish this one project in tech, which was to make a breadboard. I think there might be a photo that pops up on the screen, the um, one before that one. This is my breadboard, my amazing, my amazing breadboard. All right. You can see I was a real wordsmith in high school as well, by the way. Just a poet, an absolute poet. Could write, write really deep and profound messages. You'll see that one up the, up the front there says, Dear Mum, Love Jack, 2004. It's just profound. It's amazing. But that's my breadboard that I made. I, I, I messaged Mum and Dad to see where that breadboard was earlier in the week. It's like my crowning achievement of high school. Where is it? And, uh, and then that second photo that you saw, that's where it kind of lives. It's just made its way down, that's not even like the, all the breadboards that get used, the good breadboards are up next to the microwave and all the bad breadboards are now just tucked away under it. My crowning achievement has just been forgotten and put under the microwave. But when you think of crowning achievement, what comes to mind? Uh, maybe it is the, you know, the coronation of King Charles yesterday, I just put your hand up if you saw that example coming. Yep, you did, I just really got my finger on the pulse, right, it's good, it's good. <laughs> Uh, but this morning we read, of, we read about Jesus, don't we, uh, who's been crowned with glory and honour. Uh, but the picture in mind, uh, it isn't of like a, the, the coronation of a king, rather the picture in mind that of someone, is of someone who's just won something, someone who's just conquered. So picture something like an Olympic athlete who's just won a gold medal. They're on the podium and a wreath, or a crown of flowers is placed upon their head as victor. This is the imagery that's on display here, but it's, it's not flowers, is it? It's glory and honour that Jesus is crowned with. Uh, and why? Uh, it's because of his death. Because of his death. See, for the day Hebrews was written in, a couple of thousand years ago, that was a pretty weird idea. Uh, but it's still a weird idea today, isn't it? I mean, how could someone's death mean that they're crowned with glory and honour? It doesn't seem like a crowning achievement, it seems like the end. It seems like a failure. And the people around those Christians back then, they, they would have said something like this. Oh, okay, so you think someone who has died is the person I should listen to about how to live? All right. I don't know if those words sound familiar to some of, of your ears today, not just back then. And I don't know, maybe it's something you've heard and that actually does make you feel a little bit embarrassed. It does make you actually want to shy away from being associated with Jesus because others laugh at him. Maybe you feel that in the workplace, maybe at school, you feel that, maybe at uni. We talked about life's pressures last week, pressures uh, that come from multiple different directions, financially, relationally, from work, from family, from, from health. Uh, there's a lot of pressure, not to mention the pressure to stop following Jesus because society around us thinks it's uh, a lie and a bit ridiculous. But all of those pressures, they vie for our attention, they, they seek to distract us from our desperate need for Jesus. Maybe the pressures of life close in, you kind of feel like Jesus isn't there. Maybe like he doesn't care, or maybe like he doesn't actually understand what you're going through, and so can't be of any comfort or help. Maybe you've started listening to those other voices that say it's not worth it to keep following Jesus. But this morning we read that Jesus' death, the thing that looks like failure is actually the thing that qualifies him as the one that we desperately need always. 
the one that we need to trust in and follow amidst life's pressures. And actually we see in Jesus this morning, not a dead man, but a living one, crowned with glory and honour, who's felt our pressures of life, who has suffered, who has felt the temptation to turn away from God in rejection because of it, but who has triumphed over it and who is able to help us when we attempted to do the same. See, Jesus' death wasn't a failure, it was a victory. And Jesus was the only one, the only one who could achieve this kind of victory. We see this uh, this morning that it needed to be a human who did this. And we see that it needed to be Jesus. See, he's the better human. We couldn't have done this. But he's achieved a victory that means that death does not spell our end. Achieved a victory that means the pressures of this life cannot spell our end. See, this morning we see that Jesus has achieved a victory that means our place in the world to come is assured. That means that we are God's children, not his enemies. That means we are free from the power of the devil and that means we have help when we feel like throwing the towel in because of life's pressures. It's all because of the victory of Jesus' death. He's crowned with glory and honour because he deserves it. And he's better than anything that has come before, that is on offer in the world today, or that the world could ever offer in the future to us. If you've got a leaflet in front of you, you'll see the first point there, says, crowned with glory. In verses 5 to 9 of this passage, the author of Hebrews places three things in front of us. Three things. Firstly, what we're meant to see. Uh, Secondly, what we do not see. And thirdly, what we can and need to see. So firstly, what we are meant to see. Secondly, what we do not see. And thirdly, what we can and need to see. See, Firstly, what we are meant to see. Uh, Back in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews highlighted how Jesus is the better messenger, as I said at the start, than any who've come before. That includes both earthly messengers, being uh, prophets who came before him, and it includes heavenly messengers, meaning angels. Jesus is the messenger we need to listen to, the one we need to pay attention to, His message of salvation we need to hear and respond to. That's what we looked at last Sunday. But in verse 5 this morning, the author of Hebrews continues to compare Jesus to angels. Uh, But this time it's not to compare him as a messenger, but as a ruler, as a king. See, it's not to angels, we read, that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. See, it's not to angels that God's eternal kingdom and future new creation belongs Remember last week, this world, it's it's perishing. The new creation is coming and the ruler of that new creation, God's eternal kingdom, is Jesus. But before we get to that point though, we read in verse 6 to the first part of verse 8 what we are meant to see in God's world today. See, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 to 6 to share what we're meant to see before drawing it all back to Jesus. He says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Then they continue. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. I mean, what a, what a big picture of humanity, of finite beings. See, the God who made this world, he is mindful of the existence of you and I. Actually, we read he cares for us. He didn't just create us, but he cares for us. 
And he gave us a role to play in his world, sharing in his glory and honour. We see this in Genesis, don't we? The very first book of the Bible with Adam and Eve. Humanity's first representatives living rightly before God, tending to his creation. It should be on the screen behind me. In Genesis 2, how God set Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend to it, to take care of it. And from verse 19, we read about how God brought animals to Adam so that Adam could name them. Creation is subject to man and man subject to God, in relationship with God. We read how God created both man and woman as equals, together to tend to his creation side by side. See, this picture of Psalm 8, it's what we are meant to see. But then we get to the second half of verse 8, don't we, which says what's on all of our minds. At present, we do not see everything subject to them. Do you remember what else we read in Genesis? There's that crafty serpent, Satan. He planted the seed of doubt about God's goodness, about God's intention and about humanity's place under God and for God in Eve and Adam's minds. And then first Eve and then Adam disobey God, buying the lie that it should be up to us to decide how we live in God's world and that we don't need him. It's obvious as we look around the world, isn't it, that something's gone horribly wrong? Like as much good as we see, as amazing as some human feats have been, some of those crowning achievements like that awesome breadboard uh, and some of the good accomplishments, um, that some of the good that those accomplishments have brought about. But we also see that there's, there's brokenness and evil right alongside it, isn't it? There's violence, there's oppression, there's sickness and death. But there's something wrong in the world. And the Bible shows us and teaches us Um, that this problem is that we, like Adam and Eve, have rejected God's rule for our own. We've said no to God. And so we see brokenness. But it's not just external to us, uh, it's inside of us, in our hearts. See, what we're meant to see uh, is people and God living in right relationship. What we can't see uh, is people and God living in right relationship. Instead, we see humankind living under God's judgment his right judgment because of our sin against him and we see brokenness and and we feel broken. Uh, But remember, there's a third thing, what we can and need to see. See, The author continues, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus is the fulfilment of Psalm 8, the one crowned with glory and honour. We don't see it in us, but we see it in Him. We can't deal with the brokenness of the world, but God can and has through His Son, Jesus, and He's done it through His death. It's the countercultural victory. It's the person who looks like they've come last, being given the gold medal. I remember what, we, what we've been reading through in 1 Corinthians with Carl, um, the series before this one. In 1 Corinthians, we read that the cross is, is foolishness to the world. And it should be on the screen behind me. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Jesus' death, the cross, uh, means victory. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 to 18, we read about why the death Jesus died means victory and what it means that Jesus tasted death for us. And I want to suggest that what we see here is that for those who trust in Jesus, 
and in his victory over sin and death, we receive childhood, freedom, an assured place in the world to come, and help when we're tempted to give up and think that it's not true. We receive childhood, freedom, an assured place in the world to come, and help when we're tempted to give up and think that it's not true. So we have this pioneer who is all about freeing his brothers and sisters. That's point two on your outlines. We read from verse 10 to 13, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. See, Jesus' death means that we can be brought into the family of the pioneer of salvation. I don't know what comes to mind when you think pioneer, but the idea is of someone who goes before everyone else on a new trail that's been previously untraveled. And the new trail that's been previously untraveled but that is now open to us because of Jesus' death, it's the trail back to God, the trail away from God's judgment and into salvation as part of his family. Now imagine you're at the Olympics uh, and the Olympic marathon has just concluded and you're in the crowd and you're watching the award ceremony. Now just imagine the gold medalists for the Olympic marathon, they, they spot you in the crowd of people, way up there in the stadium. They spot you, and they walk up to you. Now, we can't be under any illusions that anyone in this room could ever win that event, right? No one could win that Olympic marathon. It's good. I think it's definitely not likely for me. I walked up Brown Hill with a couple of guys at the back this, um, just a couple of nights ago, and halfway up, I realized my breathing, I sounded like a dehydrated and really angry koala. It's a, it's a struggle, it's a struggle. It's definitely not gonna be me doing that marathon. I suspect it's the same for everyone here. Uh, but, but imagine the gold medalist, the one who's won that Olympic marathon, right, that's massive. They walk up to you and they put their arm around your shoulders and they walk you to the podium with them side by side and they help you up onto the podium and they say to everyone, here I am with my sister. Here I am with my brother. See, that's the idea here. Jesus' death, his great victory, makes those who follow him his family. They share in his victory. But, but what is this victory? What are, we, what are we thinking about here when we think victory? It's not an Olympic marathon. We go on to read about it in verses 14 to 17. We read, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I heard a pastor preaching on this recently called William Taylor, and he called Jesus' death a bunker-busting death. Just love that phrase, a bunker-busting death. What he means is that in Jesus' death, we see the greatest jailbreak of all time. 
that we see Jesus throwing wide the doors of the prison that because of our sin, we had locked ourselves up in to face the coming judgment of God in its entirety. He brings us out safely. And the power of him who holds the power of death, the devil, has been destroyed. But what is the devil's power? What does that mean? And how did it enslave us to the fear of death? In another part of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, we get a bit of an insight into this in verses 10 to 11. It should be on the screen behind me. We read this. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, what is the devil's power? Well, it's the power to accuse. It's the power to point out to God what Adam and Eve were guilty of, uh, what you and I in this room are guilty of as well, uh, our sin. It's the power to point out that we do deserve God's judgment, that we deserve to face the penalty for the way we've treated God. That's his power, to point out what God already knows, that we are guilty. But Jesus does away with that power. His death is a bunker-busting death. And it's all because he became a human we can't be. He became a human we can't be. And because he became the sacrifice that we couldn't provide but desperately needed. We read in verse 16 to 17, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus' death was a death that turned the wrath of God off of us and onto himself. That's what making atonement for the sins of the people is getting at. And instead of God's wrath being poured out onto you and I, onto us, it was poured out onto Jesus in his death on the cross. See, part of the role of a high priest in the Bible was to offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the Israelites uh, to do this, to to turn aside God's wrath and judgment for their sin. But in Jesus, we see a high priest who offered a sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath and judgment, but a sacrifice that wasn't an animal, but was Jesus himself, fully human, fully God. And it was a once-off sacrifice, a final and perfect sacrifice. And he had to be fully human in order for this to work. See, if it's humanity that it's guilty of sinning against God, then a human needs to be the one to face the consequences for it. It can't just be an animal. It needed to be human. And it should be you or I facing those consequences, but instead Jesus does. The perfect sacrifice. He deals with the penalty of sin that we deserve on our behalf by taking our place before God's wrath and judgment. And if the devil's power lay in our guilt, well, if Jesus takes that guilt away with his death, then the devil is defeated. He has no more power. We are free. Jesus has set free his brothers and sisters to join him in the world to come, in relationship with the God who loves us, sharing in the glory and honour of his victory with us, bringing Psalm 8 to its fulfilment in Jesus. See, what is mankind that God is mindful of them? 
What is mankind that God would descend to this broken and messed up and God-hating world to love it, to love you, to love me, and make it possible for us to have an eternal new home with him, to be forgiven, to be free from sin and guilt, to be free from the pressures of this life. See, in Jesus, we receive childhood, brought into God's family, receive freedom. We receive an assured place in the world to come. And finally, point three on your outlines, we receive help when we're tempted to give up and think that it's not true. Verse 18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This verse is a great source of comfort for all of us. Because it's a verse that says Jesus understands uh, what you're going through right now. Jesus understands it, not just on the level of being able to see what you go through, but as someone who knows what it is to suffer, someone who knows what it is to feel the pressures of life and that kind of squeeze, and to feel it to its greatest extent. Though there is one great difference between Jesus and us, isn't there? And it's that he beat it. He never failed. Never sinned. Rather, he's conquered the sin that would otherwise destroy us, qualifying himself as the one who can actually help us, who has helped us, who saved us. So who is more likely to be the helpful voice when you're in need? Is it the person who, who doesn't really know what you're going through, who understand, but says, um, you might get through this? Or is it the person who knows what you're going through? The person who's actually gone through it and come out the other side and can say with 100% confidence, if you follow me, things are going to be okay. See, Jesus is the one who knows exactly what you go through and it's not because he's a bystander God who just watches you. It's because he's the God who's been down in the dirt with his face pressed in the mud. He gets it. And he continues to be down there in the dirt with you where you are struggling, where you are feeling the pressure and weight of this life. He gets it. See, looking to Jesus in our need helps us see someone who has felt the temptation that is caused by the pressures around us. The temptation to find solace in ungodly pursuits as a distraction from the pain and discomfort. The temptation to turn from following God in order to listen to uh, false promises of the serpent in the garden who says, surely you don't need to listen to God. See, when we look to Jesus, we see someone who gets it and who says, don't give up, keep trusting in me. When we look to Jesus, we also look to the one who has assured those who trust in him a home in the world to come, because this one is perishing. Looking to Jesus in our need helps us see the one who the world to come is subject to, and understand that that is the world in which we belong now. Not in this world that is perishing, when we put our trust in Jesus. Its pressures, its brokenness is being done away with and we look with hope toward life with Jesus where those things are no more. And so we can know those things for what they are today. Temporary. They're not our world, they're going to perish. As Jesus is eternal and he calls us to be with him. Now finally, looking to Jesus in our need, it turns us away from a guilty conscience and away from sin and rejection of God and steers us toward the gentle love of a merciful, faithful high priest through whom we have forgiveness. And this is the thing we need to come back to constantly, always. 
See, this is how Jesus helps us in our desperate need. Uh, see, we, we fail. It's our condition. But even as those who have put our trust in Jesus and as those who want to follow him and obey him, uh, we still get it wrong. We still fail. But when we fail and we sin, we have Jesus, a high priest seated in heaven, crowned with glory and honour. And when the devil points at you before God and yells guilty, well, Jesus has his arm wrapped around you on top of that podium and he says, no, forgiven. See, in our great need, our greatest need, Jesus is there. In the pressures and weight of life, Jesus is there and he understands the struggle you go through, the, the grind of life, he gets it. And he's calling us not to look inward in those times to seek solution and peace because we'll never find it. He calls us to look at him, our king, the better human, the pioneer of salvation who's made a way for eternal peace, for eternal hope and for eternal joy. The one who the world to come is subject to and who wants you there with him. So what's left but for us to come before this saviour in complete dependence and trust, knowing that even if in this world death is the next step, it's a step that Jesus has taken before us and it's a death that Jesus has busted open toward new life. It's to this saviour, this king, this high priest that we can speak right now, bringing our troubles before him, knowing that he understands. We can speak to him and he hears and he loves and he helps when we are tempted to turn away from God. As we fix our eyes on him, as we see how he has acted so definitively, so powerfully and so lovingly on our behalf. So let's fix our eyes and our hearts on him now. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for how you have acted toward us out of mercy and grace and love through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that you're not a distant God, that you saw us in our desperate need, in our sin and shame because we rejected you. And you chose not to reject us, but you came down into a broken world to bring forgiveness and to bring life. And you did it through the death of your own son. Lord, we praise you for this. We pray that you would help us always cling to Jesus. Always know that we can turn to him in our desperate need. We pray that it would be a church that stands side by side, always pointing towards him. Always encouraging one another. Always to look to Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this amazing grace. This amazing mercy that you've shown to us. This amazing love in your son, Jesus. Amen.